Welcome to the People Profit Purpose Podcast from the Singapore Centre for Social Enterprise, RAISE. I'm your host, Sharon Chen, and this podcast will share how businesses can do good authentically and strategically, such that doing good becomes a value creator instead of a cost centre. Here in each episode, three guest speakers will share their thoughts and uncover insights into a particular topic of doing good and social entrepreneurship. Well, if you're looking for more sustainable ways to create social impact for your business, now this show is for you. Today's episode is titled, Fail It Forward. We failed, so you don't have to. Have you heard of the value of death for a startup? 90% of startups fail and only 30% survive after five years. Running a profitable business is tough enough, but social enterprises take it one step further by incorporating social impact into their business and commit to creating value for all stakeholders, not just shareholders. It is interesting to note that, according to the State of Social Enterprise in Singapore study conducted by the British Council, in partnership with RAISE, significant one-third of them have continued operations for more than five years, demonstrating um, the resilience and commitment of the sector toward continued impact creation. Now, today, we have with us Mr. Alfie Othman, CEO of The Rays, Mr. Ashok Melwani, Managing Director of AB Melwani, and Mr. Brian Long, CEO of Testing Ground. Both Mr. Ashok and Mr. Brian are also fellows in the Rays Fellowship Program, where they mentor and guide social enterprises. Let's have a listen as they share their experiences with entrepreneurship and how they cope with failure and also what lessons can you take away without having to go through the same experiences. Okay, gentlemen, now to get the conversation started, could I get you to introduce yourselves and share with our audience the time when you first heard the term social enterprise? Okay, let me go first then. Well, that's tough because I have to count the number of years. It was about 20 years ago, I must say, or 18 years ago, when I started a business after I left my banking world. And my idea was to set a business to employ folks from my neighbourhood, childhood friends who happen to be 90% of them are ex-offenders anyway, my cousins, my neighbours, my friends. And from a banker to a small business, I do not know what business to start, but I know that it'd be cool to kind of, you know, get them into work and, and so forth and so forth. And I started your food business, it's a, it's a central kitchen, and it, why food is a no-brainer, cut, cleaning, washing, it's easy to, to pick up. And I don't even know, as I said, that was the definition of social enterprise until someone from NUS came to me and said, why don't you go to Manila and go to this particular organization and know about what you're trying to do is actually something that has a definition. So I went there for a week and then realized that, you know, there is an, a concept or an entity called social enterprise which makes business with impact. And in this case, my impact is to provide employment, gainful employment to the disadvantaged group. Now, because my entity, well, there's about 20 people, about half of them are folks from ex-offenders and therefore, you know, it was a challenge and it, it's something that I thought is useful. Why don't we kind of share this business model with the others and, you know, slowly things picked up and this is where we are now. It is a, a fairly vibrant ecosystem and it's something that is new and emerging. So that's how I chanced upon um, this entity or this concept or this definition of social enterprise. Ashok? Thanks. So my name is Ashok. I've been kind of a businessman for more than 30 years. And last year, I 
took a decision to close a restaurant which I'd been running for 23 years. And I'll share more about that later. But basically, social enterprise, I'm not sure when I first knew of social enterprise because we always knew about non-for-profit organizations which you know, are enterprises but not necessarily having income. But then suddenly you start to see that non-profits also have an income stream in order to fund their activities and not just rely on fundraising. So, but today I'm fully aware of it. Um, Interestingly, I also had my first exposure to it through two different uh, Philippine organizations, including one run by Singaporeans. So it's, it's quite interesting. But yeah, happy to be here and over to Brian. Yeah, so my name is Brian. I'm an entrepreneur in residence at the Singapore University of Social Sciences. I'm also doing my own impact startup over in India doing live selling in rural villages. So there's a new experience for me taking tech to the rural villages in India. And that's probably a question you can ask me how I do it here while I'm in Singapore and the villages are in India, right? But I think the more important question for me here is when I heard about impact startups, right? Because I'm in the startup world. So social enterprise, I'm not really sure. It's been there for a long time. But of course, thanks to Race, I also get a chance now to mentor and help a lot of social enterprises in race and has a fellow. Yeah, so failures again, right, let's touch on this. Maybe we can share from a personal experience standpoint, why is it important and how do we see it from a perspective of the bigger picture? Maybe I showed you are someone that has done it for 20 over years, so please share. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, so failure, actually when you use the word failure, it makes it sound so traumatic, but why don't we just perhaps keep it as a mistake? Because as a business person, or as a human, sorry, we all, we all make mistakes. And when you make a mistake that becomes expensive, then you think, oh, that was a failure. But the failure actually comes when that particular business can no longer exist. Yeah? And for me, I've had <laughs> more than a handful of, of such uh, interesting experiences. And I think what was super important was that in my mind, I view them as expensive tuition. When I was with my family's business long ago, I started a business in Germany, which... In those days, we lost quite a few million and I thought, wow, okay. But it was actually fantastic tuition because I learned a lot about doing business in a different culture, which later on in life, those were pretty priceless lessons. I started a perfume distribution company in Singapore, which didn't work at all. And there I learned about the importance of how I choose my partners because there was sort of non-alignment of values with those particular two partners who were running that business. And after that, actually, I've been really super careful about alignment of expectations and value, especially in joint ventures and partnerships. So I think it's really important to know these things. So those are some mistakes which ended in failure. And the one which perhaps I got a bit more publicity than I wanted was in 2020 when I closed Modesto's. I've been around for 23 years. And when COVID came along, I looked at our business model and I said, OK, I'm 60 years old. It's going to be quite a bit of money to put back into the company to re-engineer in order to survive COVID. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm not ready to fight this battle all over again and let me exit. And actually for me, that was also a beautiful lesson because I actually call it my most successful failure. I was very disheartened thinking about closing this restaurant. It was like a baby, you know, I started it 23 years ago and we've had a good run and a lot of people have been our loyal customer for the years. And what helped a lot was to ask myself, what would a graceful exit look like? And I came up with three things that number one, I want to make sure I pay all my suppliers. I don't want to go out owing money. Number two, that I will do my best to help my staff find jobs. And number three, that I would somehow make sure we served our most uh, popular dishes right to the last day. 
And yeah, actually, the the last few days we were open, a lot of the team were, of course, sad, but very motivated because I kept selling that vision of these are the three things we need to do to have a graceful exit. Let's celebrate 23 years of existence rather than cry about closing. And actually, it was amazing because normally if you're going to close down, you'll, everybody will leave the ship, yep. right? And it, I didn't think that I would be that successful in being able to keep that right to the last day. But it was beautiful and yep. uh, yeah, special. Uh, I, should, I mean, I don't get moved by statements easily at this age, but I thought it was lovely that you kind of connote failures to making mistakes. And I can share with you, I think one of my biggest mistakes is to hold on and being sentimental to a business mm. until it gets too costly and too painful to let go. Mm. So that was one one of my biggest mistakes as, you know, when you do these things. But beautiful, I mean, failure equals mistakes and we are not perfect and we make mistakes. Therefore, we should learn from those, although it's very expensive, I must say, <laughs> from one point. Yeah. yeah. Brian, maybe just from your perspective, you're still a young man. So how do you see failure? Yeah, so I'm not exactly young, but... <laughs> younger than I, us. Younger than all of you, yes, yeah. yes, that's right. I've been in the startup scene for almost 12 years now, saw how it grew and everything. And I can share that my first learning about failure is my first startup that I did after I finished, well, I was halfway through law school, my third degree actually. And I was halfway through law school, I came out, I did my first startup, I did everything my MBA told me to do. And then when I launched it, no one came, right? I lost a whole bunch of money on that. And at that moment, when I closed it down, I shut down the website, I realized, what did I do wrong? <laughs> what did I do wrong, right? So I didn't cry. I didn't do anything other than go to Google, like Unaggy, right? And just type in Unaggy, like, how do I do a startup? And I kid you not, one year before that, it said, do a business plan. One and a half years later, it told me to read a book called Lean Startup, right? Which was, go and test your idea out. And that was when I said, my first degree is in engineering. So I was like, hmm, why did it not occur to me to test my ideas out? And that's when I developed a philosophy around failure. It became first attempt in learning, F-A-I-L. It's your first attempt in learning anything, right? So that's number one. And then as an engineer, I'm glad you share a very emotional story, but I will share a very scientific version of failure to me now. All failures and successes are nothing more than data points. Experience is accumulation of data points that you begin to understand trends you can project forward because of prior data points, right? So you are a living AI, right? You're an obvious living intelligence. And so using all of this prior knowledge, you're able to make better decisions. And I think Ashu's story about having a graceful exit is one good example that even at the point of closing something, he knew in his experience that people count. And so because of that, that guided his decisions, right? Now, a more newer startup like myself will be like, what do I do now? How do I close a company down, right? And we will fret. We don't think about the people. But that's an example of accumulation of data points and about people and all that. So to me, failure is a data point. Okay, it's down. Success is a data point. It went up. What I want to do is from failure, how do I not do that again? And from success, how do I repeat that again, scalably, repeatably, right? And if I can keep doing those small experiments and in Lean Startup, we call that minimum viable products. We call it setting up experiments. As I do those experiments, the smallest version of things that I can do to learn from the customer or learn from the team or learn from my suppliers, then at the lowest effort possible, which includes cost, each failure is not so expensive, <laughs> And then I prioritize speed, right? Rather than length of uh, effort, you know, I prioritize speed. Okay. 
Yeah. So actually, I just before I forget, I want to dive in that you, you triggered a good thought in me, which is along the way, somehow I coined my own term or I learned it somewhere, which was intelligent regret. That when you make a mistake, you know, rather than get down and beat yourself up, have intelligent regret, which means, as you say, analyze what did I do wrong and learn from it rather than just wallow in self-pity. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is not a cake that everyone wants to eat, right? To be an entrepreneur and so forth. And I mean, first attempt, um, I mean, you can't stop. It's good to experience new things. So for those first timers, so what's the threshold of failures? How do you know this is not up for you? I mean, as a, you know, not everybody can become an entrepreneur. Right? I mean, you have the scientific way, you, you have the traditional way of instincts and so forth getting you know, people coming together, stakeholders or partners and so forth. Looking at data is another angle. But, but for first timers, you do it, you fail. Second time you do it, you fail. So where's the line of learning? So for me, the first thing that an entrepreneur, at least in Singapore, we need to overcome is our culture of kiasi and kiasu. Okay? So kiasi is a big problem because it says I scared to die, right? which means I don't even try at all, okay? Kiasu, on the other hand, means I scared to lose, which means when it's time to stop, as what you alluded to, Alfie, you don't stop. You face something that should be closed and you're not closing it, right? So those two things are actually quite, they encompass the entrepreneur's journey. When do I start something and when do I close something, right? Even in tech products, we have to end of life something. We say that no one's using this, why are we keeping it around? Let's kill it off, Right? So even that part there is that there's a bit of fear of missing out, there's a little bit of attachment to it. And so what I always suggest to entrepreneurs to be is, yeah, treat everything as an experiment. If you say, I don't want to start because I'm scared of the risk, then take the biggest step that you can take at this point in time, set it up as an experiment and ask, well, what will be the worst that come out of it? Because it's the biggest step I can take, right? I'm not risking everything. And it's actually a misnomer to say that, <laughs> that entrepreneurs are risk takers. We're actually risk managers, right? We see an allocation of capital. We see what is supposed to be used. We ask what's the best way to utilize the capital to learn the most so that we can scale up a business model, right? That's risk management. It's not, oh, this feels good. Let's do it, <laughs> right? At least in the tech startup world, that's what we would do is risk management because you come up with a business model canvas, you run your experiments, is that you do it in a systematic way to uncover what you don't know and your assumptions about the customers. That's not risk-taking. That's actually risk management. And that's a very scientific approach as any other researcher who have done. And so I do like this one. What is research? It's re-searching for the truth. That you have a version of truth in your head. And when you go out there to talk to customers, you're re-searching for what is truth to them. What is the customer saying? What is your partner saying? What are your beneficiaries feeling, right, when you do your stuff? That's research. Research is not, oh, I just want to learn. It's also uncovering what your own hidden assumptions and your biases are and letting go of them so they can relearn the truth from your customers. So that's my point of view, at least for how entrepreneurs can begin, that if you don't review it as a massive, like drop everything and says, no, what's the smallest thing that I can do to start learning and researching for the truth? Uh, that's a good way to begin. So I just want to check the question was pretty much when to know how to cut loss. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So like for me, actually, that's always a big battle between ego and gut feel, right? And because the wonderful thing about English proverbs is that you, you have proverbs for both sides of the case. So you have the, oh, dig three feet deeper, you're almost at the end of the gold mine, or first loss is the best loss, right? I think for me, what I've learned through the years is that the times where I did not cut loss fast enough, ego got in the way. 
and it was like, you know, oh, I can build a better mousetrap and surely I can turn this around. And that kind of just landed up to bleeding longer than needed. Because uh, I think somebody asked me once, what advice would I give my children? And I say, okay, there's this expression that when one door closes, another door opens. And I would say that don't make the mistake of staring too long at the door that closed and keep banging away to see if it'll reopen, you know. Okay, if it's closed, it's closed. Go on to the next door. Okay. Well, we are talking about social enterprise and impact. So it adds a new dimension or a new challenge when you talk about a failure or success of an entity. In this case, right, it's a social enterprise, social business, impact enterprise. So it's a hybrid organization where you're making money, you're making profits, you have to be sustainable and you're creating an impact. So over the years that we have done this job, the last six years and personally over the last 15 years, I think one of the challenges and the failures that I felt was I get too sentimental on the impact. I get too attached to the impact and I've, I've lost a bit more of the objectivity on the business side of things. So something has to give um, in a business entity. So you want to have more impact, I guess you're going to kind of discount a bit of your business and vice versa. Now, it'd be good to get your views on this, especially Ashok, you are coming from a fresh pair of lens, coming from a serial entrepreneurial standpoint, develop a business. Given an assumption, you are now running a social enterprise, a successful one, and you know that impact is core to the DNA of your business. Yep. How would you manage that risk in Brian's word? You know, is we are not taking risk, we are managing risk. Yep. Of making sure that the impact is not a liability, it should be an asset on your balance sheet. Uh, That's a great question. Firstly, one key principle of business I learned in the crash of 98 was that turnover is vanity, profit is reality, but cash flow is necessity. And I think that whether or not you're doing social impact or you're doing a regular business, ultimately, it's about the cash flow. I mean, without cash flow, there's, it's the oxygen of business. And even if you manage to have wonderful social impact, but you're, you keep running deficit cash flow, then at some point, you know, you're going to run out of oxygen and that's the end of your journey. So I would say that the balance comes when profit is not your primary motive. But I think as a social entrepreneur, my advice would be that you still have to pay a lot of attention to how you have the cash flow of your business and be creative in terms of maximizing the reach that you can achieve based on the cash flow that you have. My late brother always used to say like, okay, if you're a good businessman, learn to make your suit according to the cloth you have. Uh, and actually for me, that was always very good advice in life. That turnover of vanity... Turnover, turnover is vanity, profit is reality, but cash flow is the necessity. Is that your quote? Yeah. Can I use it? Of somewhere? course, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> that, so, that was my lesson from <laughs> Crash on 98. Yeah. Brian, over to you. How do you, how do you want to balance this or manage this in your own words? So I love the thing about cash flow. I understand because I do have some consulting work, right? So you do know that cash flow, without it, you can't keep people on. Huh? So from a business angle, uh, cash flow is very, very powerful. From a tech startup point of view, it takes time to invest, to build up a network, a community, a platform, right? So you're actually investing to kickstart something. And in the beginning, until people recognize the value in the platform, they won't pay for it. So you kind of need to seed the platform. And that's where investor money come in. Now, if you are an impact startup and you are saying, how do I then build out this platform, right? And have cash flow in the beginning, the answer is going to be very difficult, right? That's why you go and find impact investors to talk about the 
impact of your platform? Why are you connecting two groups of people? Why are you enabling the community? So investments factor quite a bit into impact startups, right? When you're trying to raise money, at least for tech startups. And in that case, you do need to be able to quantify the impact that you're about to make. You can't bring up anecdotal like, oh, I'm helping one person and this person needs to help and so I need your money and say, wow, that's a lot of money to help one person. Right? Even though we know this person is important, right? what they are looking for is this, show me where the needle moves and how it moves for some social metric out there. So, of course, we have the SDG goals that are out there. But even then, when you look at a broad SDG goal, you have to ask which aspect of that development goal are you aiming for, right? And then you can explain to the investor. Now, on the other hand, for the entrepreneur themselves, if they veer too far to the business side of stuff, I find frequently there will be a point where they will come back like, why am I doing this? <laughs> they, they will start losing sight of why they're doing it and they lose their own internal passions, right? They're like, I feel like I'm just chasing after the money now. And so there's this bit here of balancing the business model and your own value or your own impact model for yourself, right? So I feel that for most impact startups, there will come a point in time where they have to say, all right, these two aligns, here's one metric or two metrics that will help me keep track of it, that will also explain my story and the story of the startup to my investors and also bring people to join me and also bring the people to the platform. And that is a process of experimentation. Right? They have different stories. They try different ways to talk to the investors. They find that this story works. They talk to the beneficiaries, but it doesn't work. Then they try something else. And slowly they find that there is a common story that links the community together where now investors can put in money, beneficiaries benefit, customers start coming, employees start joining. And that's when the true platform starts being built out. But in the beginning, it's hard to just come up with a story that works immediately. You kind of need to test it out. Yeah, from a startup, it's always some assumptions and some projections. Right? Yeah. And when you talk about impact startup, you talk about valuations. And some of the valuations that we can see these days are quite insane, I must say, but uh, it is what it is, especially in emerging needs like mental health. Right? And to a certain extent, aging now, we see business solutions coming in. We all know aging is going to be a, a big market segment comes 2030 in Singapore and in all developed economies. But especially in an emerging sector like in the impact areas of aging needs and mental, there's a lot of prototyping, a lot of startup. Eventually, many would fail because it's emerging. Right? How, how do we then, basically an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur. They are the carpenter. The tools are the tech that you have. Now, how do we harness that spirit and that experience of the entrepreneur to make sure that, you know, to learn from failure, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a tech startup, a social enterprise startup or normal startup. What's the common denominator as an entrepreneur or a team of founders? How do they address failures? How do us as a person look at failures versus from a business standpoint? Because behind every business is always a team of people. Now, how do we then capture this emotionally? Because at the end of the day, we are social creatures, we are emotional creatures. We, are, we hide behind the business, but we are who we are on a lazy Saturday afternoon, alone, rainy day, being melodramatic. How do we face this? How do we overcome that demon of I fail or I make mistakes. Maybe I'm paying for it. My family might pay for it. It's not an easy question. How do we overcome that? So I had something which worked really well for me um, in my life. At that famous crash of 98, I had a wise university classmate. I was from NUS and he said, Ashok, there's this Chinese idiom. I don't know the Chinese version, but in English, in battle, when your horse dies, you just get up and walk. And for me, I've written a letter to myself many times in my life. I still have most of them where... I asked, in this situation, what was the horse that died? And what does getting up 
and walking look like, you know. And I found it to be a really wonderful thing because sometimes the horse I think that died actually didn't die, it's just injured, <laughs> right? But if you really know the horse is dead, okay, the mental image is that you're down in the mud. But I like what Brian said about, you know, Cassie, because in a way you should be scared to die. I mean, if you are in a fight, right, and you are down on the ground in the mud, you should jolly well get up and walk and fight, not just be happy to die. So for me, that worked really well. And like I said, I wrote that letter to myself more than a handful of times. Okay. Writing letters to oneself. Do you mail it or do you no, email? No, 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 no. No, I mean, the, the, actually, you don't even really need to write the letter. It's all about that mental picture. Yeah. What is the horse that died and what the standing up and fighting look yeah. like? Right. So I have a version of that. So I'm glad we also write it down, right? Except for me, I like to share it. Uh, so what I do is I actually create PowerPoint slides. That means if I'm going to teach people about this failure, right? What is it that I've learned and that I won't do again? And what will I try and do again? And I make a course out of it or I do a, a, a blog post or something. And I frequently use it to become, when every, anyone invite me for some session to talk to students, yeah, here's my new slide, right? So I find that it's useful because I create value in the ecosystem. And I think that's what I appreciated in the earlier days when we started all the Block 71 and everything else for the startup ecosystem was that we started sharing a lot about our failures. We were encouraging people to share those stories. And it's essential because when you hear my story, you learn the lessons that I learned kind of free, right? It's cost me a lot of money, but there's no reason why the ecosystem needs to pay for that lesson again. Now, of course, that lessons can be updated with time, etc. But if we keep sharing, then the body of knowledge in the ecosystem grows and people come in not starting from zero. They start from maybe 0.5, right? Which is way better than zero. And I appreciate that's why a platform like Race is powerful, right? Because you're collating stories, encouraging people to share. And what happened is that social entrepreneurs are no longer feeling like I'm starting this by myself. No, you're actually standing on shoulders of giants, right? Or people who have failed before. And you're starting from there. If everybody starts a new social impact from zero, then it's kind of a lot of effort versus what else have other people done, right? And that we can learn from. And it becomes a very powerful, like I said, data points, like one after another. But except instead of internal individual data points, it's collective, right? And I think this is an advantage that, uh, well, the Silicon Valley is very good at doing that. And Singapore, we are also getting to be very good at doing that. So personally, my own version of dealing with failures is whip out my PowerPoint and start doing a slide and look at it, right? And say, what did I learn? And as I do it, I feel that, okay, my failure is not in vain because I am now enabling others. That's my positive take from doing that. Well, for me, it's also more or less like I show more of a personal reflection. Of course, I'm open to share as and when it's needed. Mine is as long as I can eat and sleep and surrounded by my loved ones, my family, I think I'm fine with it because you live another day. And about Kiasi, everyone would die eventually. Just like our business, just like, you know, there has to be an exit strategy, you know, nothing is perpetual. So when you thought about that, the big picture, you know, it's just part of life. I mean, it's painful. You feel the pain, but you will overcome it if you look at that big picture and say, hey, I can still eat, I can still be with my family, I can still sleep. Nothing would face me. But just for the clarification, that letter to self wasn't about necessarily learning from the failure. It was actually asking whether or not it's failed. You know, it's, it was a test of uh, whether the horse could still get up or if I got up and fought, you know, could I still win the battle? So I, I have no issues with sharing, sharing mistakes, yeah. failures yeah. publicly because 
what the heck? Business life is pretty much done. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all here definitely sharing about failure. So I definitely yeah. appreciate that, right? And I think yeah. this is something that the ecosystem brings that previously wasn't even available to me when I started my first startup. <laughs> no one was talking about failures in that sense. So really definitely appreciate it. I'm just saying that for me, I find that taking a step back from the failure and saying that, okay, how else can I benefit others? Mm. Helps me. Right, it helps me yeah. take away the the pain or the regret and say, well, it's not for not. There's reason behind this, right? And right now, the reason is I can use this as a way to share with other people so they can learn also. Yeah. And I really appreciate the fact that uh, Alfie was talking about family and all that. I have three kids. I have a, I'm happily married for 21 years. That's why I say I'm not that young. <laughs> right, but... Uh, what do you have for breakfast, man? You have a full head of hair. You still full. look young. <laughs> it comes with the genes, I guess. But, uh, but really, it's enjoying that moment. And perversely, I don't know. I also learn to enjoy my failures. That it's an experience in my life. I know it's difficult and it's painful, but it was a necessary growth that I need at that point in time. And I'm glad my family's there to go through it with me. I don't want them to go hungry. When you asked the previous question was, what's your threshold? I think if it affects my family and their livelihood or their ability to eat and sleep, I think it's gone beyond. Okay. Right. So that's my, I didn't answer that question before. Yeah, actually, what you just said also triggers something. If I look at the previous generation of entrepreneurs, for example, from my father's time, God bless him, he's 98. And for his age, he's a really modern businessman. But, the vast majority of business people who I interacted with of that generation, face was very important. And to admit failure or a mistake was to lose face. I think that's actually a very important shift in mindset that has arisen because of the startup culture where mistakes are much more accepted compared to that generation where it was like, you know, there was this very corny idiom which my sister told me that even if your stomach is empty, have a bit of a chicken bone dangling from your mouth so people think you've just eaten well. So it was, yeah. But for me, I don't agree with that at all. It, it was very much there. Well, I started a fair bit of startups. I started this entity called Makan Boy before Food Panda. So basically doing the same thing as Food Panda doing, but maybe a few years earlier, it was captured in the local media. It was a logistical nightmare because the app platform was not there. So I have to basically go to a bunch of motorbikers, young and, you know, wild, and to ensure that deliver were being done. And I've realized it was not a food business, it was a logistic business, but I don't have the right tools or the knowledge to do this. The learning of now we know failure equals mistake equals risk management is also about timing. It's also about know-how. It's just not about an idea. Good ideas are everywhere. It's how you execute it. I think that that's very important to avoid failure. Now, from the work at Race as well, we learn. We learn from how to develop the ecosystem to a point where they are now. I think one notable way that we kind of learn is how do we fund a social enterprise? How do we invest in them? What kind of structure? Our capital is supposed not to be painful. It's supposed to be nurturing so that they can get the next round of capital. And to that, I think we knew that race is a small team. We, we don't have the muscle or the know-how or the network or the resources. So we are joining or we are calling for partners. In fact, we will launch our first impact accelerator team backed by a VC and subsequently an impact fund after that. So hopefully more would turn up, more impact startups like what you mentioned, Brian, would turn up knowing that there's an ecosystem to support them. The structure of investment is very important as well. 
So these are things that we look to always to learn from the failures or from the mistakes or from the engagement that we have over the last few years. So this is exciting, you know, because to know where are your weak points to get stronger is very important. And collectively, we can do. And, you know, with folks like Ashok and Brian coming into the ecosystem to assist, we are quite sure that the next five years will be just as exciting. I, I love the fact how this turned out to be. We started by talking about failure. We end up redefining failure. Looking at the list of questions, the last one, practical tips on how to run a successful business for good. I wonder whether we have any thoughts on that one. You have okay, some thoughts. So, yeah, practical tips. Like I said, I think one of the most powerful model that you can think of is platform thinking, right? Which means how do you enable others to do the work, not that you do everything yourself. So how do I enable my employees? How do I enable my partners, my suppliers? How do I enable the beneficiaries and the customers to be part of this? So you don't just design, I have a product, and so you come and you buy the product, buy there, thank you so much, and then the money goes to the beneficiaries, right? That's fairly product. That's a product kind of business, right? But the platform kind of business would be, okay, so I know I have a product, but how do I get customers to tell me what other products that they want and beneficiaries or whoever else or suppliers to come on board to co-create that product. And this is my favorite quote done by the CEO of Hire, H-A-I-E-R. And he says, how do I enable my company to have zero distance to customer and to become a network company? That means, how do I help you and my employees to be so close to the customers and then to enable them to work with the company and work with each other and work with everybody else, that's a network company. And I think that's going ahead as social enterprises. We can't just be insulated, right? And say, this is what I want to do and this is, I have to do everything myself. But to think of a platform, how do I enable others to create that value, to come on board, to participate, and then also to benefit from, right? Co-ownership is a big part of it. So uh, this is not a practical tip. It's more of uh, be aware of what's going on out there in the tech world. It can enable a lot of things for the social side of things now. I'm sure you have any point of view. Yeah, it's damn hard to follow Brian. Yeah. <laughs> That's very solid. No, I think I can only go back to Entrepreneurial 101. So I believe very deeply that as an entrepreneur, as a boss, as an owner, I have to have good clarity of thought in order to lead my organization. And if I'm not performing at my best, then I'm not doing my best for my company. And what I relate from there to a practical tip is that if you're a social entrepreneur, you still need to eat and sleep and look after your family, as you all have eloquently put it. And you have to be aware that if you are running on dregs because you're so committed to the beneficiaries, at some point something's got to give mm -hmm. and you may not be thinking straight about the business. So as a boss, look after yourself know your reboot mechanism. If you're stressed out, if you need a run or a, to do yoga or whatever is your own reboot mechanism, listen to music. But make sure that you keep in good mental shape. There's this wonderful reason why on the aircraft, they always say in event of oxygen uh, failure, put on your mask first before you put it on your kid. Yep. Right? So make sure that as a boss, you, you are thinking well. That, that's what I would like to share. Well, in a way, from my personal standpoint, I echo the sentiments, but I also want to look at that starting point of the journey where you need to get partners and stakeholders that align to what you're trying to do. And this is very important. And this is just not verbally or over coffee or over tea, but it should be putting into the company articles or in a shareholders agreement or in an investment agreement. Because then it provides clarity in terms of objective of that entities. 
many a times we see social enterprises or startups, you know, they would say things like, oh, we are from the same college, we are blood brothers and so forth, nothing can face us. But the moment as you evolve as a person, your expectations change, you know, it's so hard to kind of put it, you know, on the instant, why did we start this in the first place? And, you know, that to me, the starting point is just as important as you move along. How do you decide? How do you evolve? How do you learn? I think those are, are equally important. Business will come first, detach from your impact, you know, be very clear of what you're trying to do. But the starting point, please ensure that all our stakeholders are on the same page and literally on the legal agreements. You know, what you said just triggers me because I have exercise which I've used and I've asked many of my mentees, for example, to use it as well, which is imagine that it's now one year from today and you and your partners are sitting together and having a glass of really good Bordeaux or Dom Perignon or whatever you love. And it was a fantastic year because three things happened. What are these three things? And I always tell them that the key is you can't say sales went up X. It, it cannot be a quantifiable answer. It has to be qualitative. It was a great year because we finally hired the right person for this role. Or it was a great year because, you know, we managed to kind of convey our philosophy into the marketing team and they got it right. And I think that this is a really good exercise for alignment of shareholder value or stakeholder value. All right, that was really great. Um, Alfie, Ashok and Brian, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with failure so candidly with us today. Now, Ashok enlightened us that perhaps failure is too big a word. We could think about incidents like these as um, setbacks or mistakes. Alfie added that one of his biggest mistakes as an entrepreneur was being too sentimental to the business, holding on until it was too costly and painful. Brian left us with a good advice on platform thinking where businesses should think about how consumers, companies or brands, competitors and others interact and create value. This is aligned to how social enterprises create value for multiple stakeholders, including shareholders. I hope that you have gained valuable insights from the conversations and feel more ready to build a successful social enterprise. Thank you once again for joining us. This podcast is curated by the Singapore Centre for Social Enterprise, RAISE. As an ecosystem developer for social enterprises, SE in Singapore, RAISE provides a range of services to help SEs from start to mature stages, such as funding, business advisory, training, relevant resources and networks. RAISE also looks to encourage collaboration and sharing of information between SEs and other social organisations as well as corporations and individuals who would like to contribute or play a role in the SE sector. Find out more at www.raise.sg and see this episode's show notes for more links about what we discussed in this episode. And remember to subscribe to People, Profit, Purpose via your favourite podcast app to be notified when we release a new episode.